Well, I am, I'm picking up, and, and, and if uh, you've, you've been here when I've had the opportunity to preach um, over the last six months or so, for the most part, I've been kind of working a little bit through uh, the second letter of Peter. And um, I'd, I'd gotten through chapter one, got to chapter two, looked at chapter two, and chapter two is arguably one of the most... Uh, hard to put it, challenging, uh, powerful chapters really in the New Testament, um, all about uh, false teachers. And, and it, is, it is a powerful polemic of Peter um, against the false teachers that come against the church of God. So on a, on a single morning here, I decided to, well, let's leapfrog, let's go to chapter 3. And as I got into chapter 3, I'm not sure I am in safer waters. But um, it is a wonderful book. Uh, this is Peter, and, and he knows the end of his ministry is coming. And he is, he is determined to encourage the church with the time he has, he has left. He begins this letter. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. As I started to study this scripture, I actually thought about uh, a recent experience after Maddie's passing and going home to be with the Lord. Colleen and I really wanted to, we just needed to get out of town, kind of, kind of, leave familiar things behind and we we got gifted a, a stay at a resort in southern california where actually we met and we took off and drove down the coast had a wonderful drive and you know it's funny as we drove down we started remembering all kinds of things from decades ago and when we when we first started dating and and that uh, silly period, right? And uh, one of the days we were down there, we went and visited, if you've heard of a little beach community, Laguna Beach, um, and uh, wonderful shops and stuff. And this is just before Christmas, so we were wandering in and out of shops and having a great time. And, and uh, we remembered the beach and the, you know, the lifeguard stand and all that sort of thing. And as we were heading down one street, it suddenly struck me, honey, isn't the church we got married in right around the corner? And we turned the corner, and there it is. It's this beautiful Laguna, Laguna Beach Presbyterian Church, over 100-year-old church, kind of a Gothic-slash-Spanish church. I, if, I, I'm not an architectural historian, but, it, but uh, just a beautiful church, and, and you know, the, the memories just started flooding back, and we walked up to the front and did, front and did the, you know, the um, obligatory selfies, and and then we said, well, let's go, let's see if we can go inside. It was pretty dark. It was middle of the week. Knocked on a door, and after a little while, kind of a scritchy voice through this speaker said, "Can I help you?" and well, can we get inside, you know, and, and the, the office manager came out and she was just a sweetheart. We shared that, you know, we'd been married and this June, it's 35 years, praise the Lord. 
And, uh, you know, could we walk around? So she said, oh, absolutely. So she let us in, and, and we walked around. And, and uh, you know, as soon as we walked in, everything was familiar. And there was the aisle. I remember the altar. I remember the admonition from the pastor, the, 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 uh, uh, the way they, 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 they did ours. There was, there was two candles, and we were to take those two candles, and we were to light the one, symbolizing this giving up of self and, and a unification of lives and a, and a, and a commitment. And, uh, you know, looked at the stained glass. We, she, she wanted to take pictures of us everywhere. We, we kind of didn't want to bother her, and we were sort of trying to get out of there, but she was saying, no, 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 like, you know, let's take some pictures. So stood in front of this beautiful stained glass where that hero shot was done, you know, for the wedding. Had a great time, gave our thanks, walked out, started heading down the road, and we just couldn't help but be overwhelmed by the memories that, started to come back, not so much about that day, but the days after that. And all the, that, um, you know, God's intention for marriage means how absolutely little we knew of that in the beginning. And, and, uh, and the years that had, you know, many sweet memories, but also not so sweet memories and mistakes and, and, um, and reminders of God's grace. God's reminder, the reminders of, of God's merciful hand in our lives. You know, and I, and, I, and I say that only that when Peter says he is seeking to stir up our sincere mind by way of reminder, I think that's what he has in mind. It means heartfelt, earnest, wholehearted, to be fervent. Peter wants us to remember sincerely the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's talking about all the predictions, all the promises in the word of God. And specifically in this letter, as we know from the preceding chapters, he is focusing in on the certainty of the Lord's return. And in fact, you know, this, this section really rings of the theme of the beginning of the chapter where he says, his or God's divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That means his divine power is granted to us knowledge of him, or he says he, he does this through the knowledge of him. He does it through his precious and very great promises. And he says, by them, we become partakers of the divine nature. He's stirring us up to foundational, life-altering, direction-setting, motivational, motivation-establishing truth for our lives. And it's amazing that we forget these things. But time tends to produce an apathy. 
an indifference, a, a numbness. We simply get caught up in the events and the needs of the day, don't we? We become even unserious, silly, for that which once was precious and important. I think one of the issues today is that we are endlessly distracted. We're endlessly distracted by our gadgets, by our entertainment. Well, why must we have a sincere mind? Why is Peter saying this is important? He's saying this because the world is going to assault the faith of the church. And today, the world is assaulting the faith of the church, is it not? He says in verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Think about it. How often have you, have you seen or heard in some small or mocking term or subhead of an ad or, or a line of a character in a movie or a TV show that really was attempting to, uh, to assault the Christian faith? It's so prevalent. He says, scoffers will come scoffing. Sort of an interesting sort of rhythm to it. Makes me think of, maybe it's the holidays, carolers come caroling. But it's, 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 it's who they are. It's part of their DNA. Scoffers scoff. It's not just describing an activity. It's describing a way of being. In much of the world, that, that is the essence of what they are in relationship to the truths of God. They are scoffers. They're scornful, derisive, mocking. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? You've been duped. You've been lied to. Remember that common caricature of the... Of, uh, the guy with uh, sort of the sandwich board that's walking down the street, the end is near. I mean, it's ridiculous to the world. This is not going to happen. I, you know, the, the world tells us all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And I, and I remember as a young believer hearing this. You're taking your faith too seriously. The world and its events are cyclical. I think I was hearing this about the time of the financial crash of the um, 80s. And, and, and the reference was that things are going to get better. Don't, don't worry about revelation and end times and, and these, this idea that there is a God that's going to return. One day you're up, one day you're down. It's just life. Discrediting God's promises based on their finite and limited understanding. That's really the world today. It's the modern rejection. 
Now, interestingly enough, in, in, in Peter's text, he says that um, all things are continuing, that they will say all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So this is, Peter is still talking to a time that actually believed God. They may not have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel of redemption, but they believed in a God. Unless we forget, the idea that there is no God is a very recent phenomenon. I mean, that idea worldwide only started about the beginning of the 19th century. Darwin and other evolutionists is part of this age of enlightenment. But it was. It was an explosion of scientific knowledge and, and discovery. And the world began to challenge all the accepted beliefs and really began to challenge, I would say, what the Bible says is God's clear declaration. The heavens declare the glory of God. But that was challenged. And a belief system began called uniformitarianism. And it says the way we observe physical processes today is the way physical processes have always occurred. And if you understand this a little bit, it's interesting in that what is by and large, actually I would say completely portrayed as fact in terms of where we've come from, that this is this slow grinding evolutionary process is really, it, it's just a set of assumptions that nobody knows. This is where the modern, modern world is. That the, the, the whole system of, of uh, carbon dating, and I'm not, I apologize, I'm not going to get into uh, too much science in terms of evolution, but I do think it's interesting that, um, that the, the, what is considered fact, but is actually theory, is based on presupposition. And one of those presuppositions is uniformitarianism, that the observable processes that we see today are the exact processes that have always affected physical matter. And it's exactly what Peter says. All things continue today as they did yesterday. And yet it leads to a wrong conclusion because that's not true. Because it's based on another premise. God doesn't intervene. It's based on the premise, at best, of deism. That maybe there was a God who created at one point, but he has stepped back. He leaves us alone. We are left to our own devices and to figure things out on our own. But Peter says differently. Peter wants us to remember God has intervened, God does intervene, and he will intervene again, decisively. The problem, he says, is that scoffers or unbelievers overlook the truth. They overlook the truth. He says in verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God 
and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Well, why do they doubt? Why, why disbelieve? Well, he says in the beginning of verse 3, they follow their own sinful desires. They follow their desires from a sinful heart. The reality is, for a world that follows its sinful desires, the last truth it will accept is the truth that will not fulfill that desire. Man tends to believe what affirms what he wants and how he sees the world. Building your theology off of your desires is a really bad idea. Second Peter 2.10, he, he, Peter touches on this a little bit earlier. This is in that section where he's talking about the false teachers that are misleading the church. And he says, especially, speaking of false teachers, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. In the context, the glorious ones that are being blasphemed, I think Peter is referring to the angelic host who speak, but really he, in general, what he is speaking to are the messengers of God and God's message. They mock any messenger of God, and they, have, and they mock any message from God. So remember Peter's exhortation from verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Simply put, that is, that is the whole of the revealed word of God. The prophetic word of God through the Old Testament prophets, the incarnate word through Jesus and the gospel record, the apostolic word, the apostles, through the letters to the churches. We are to remember these things. But he says, the scoffer will deliberately overlook. And it reminds me of, if you think of Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The actual facts, Peter lays out the facts. The heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Genesis 1, 6 and 9. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it, be, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so this is the power of our creator God. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all of their host. 
Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Verse 6. That by means of these things, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. God created and God judged. And he did it by the same thing, by the word of God. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all of mankind. Peter refers to this earlier in his letter in chapter two saying, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the ungodly. Well, so much for God not intervening in our world. Verse seven, he says, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is the thing that is missed by the scoffer. The word of God is not like our word. It's not subject to whim. It's not subject to circumstance. Peter is reminding us God's word is certain. Paul says it to to the Thessalonians when he says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Paul reminds us we are not to be surprised because we cling to, the, to God's word and believe his promises. But Peter, his, his address to the scoffer He also has to speak to the believer. And he says in verse eight, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, the church, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass, Away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So having spoken to the scoffer, willfully overlooking the facts, Peter tells the believer, be careful. Don't overlook the facts. With the Lord, one day, is as a thousand years. And we have to be honest, it does feel like he'll never return sometimes, doesn't it? P- 
Peter does not want us to overlook the fact that God does not experience time as we do. We can't think of God in our terms. Peter says, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. But we gotta be careful. He's not, he's not giving us a calculus, right? He's not giving us an equivalency like uh, human years to dog years. We were talking about our little one-year-old pup is 16 years old, I guess. I don't know who figured that out. But God has no beginning and God has no end. Peter tells us God is not affected by time. He doesn't say, when will we get there? I can't wait for tomorrow. I'm running out of time. God is perfectly engaged. Think about this. We are, we are so caught up in yesterday and tomorrow, we never live in the moment. God is perfectly engaged at every moment, in every day, in every second of our lives. He is achieving his perfect purpose according to his perfect plan. Always. I love Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The Lord is not slow, brothers and sisters, to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he says he is patient towards you. Peter doesn't want us to overlook the fact that God does not fulfill his promises in our way and in our time. So that the claim, God is slow. He's disinterested and he's disengaged. You will hear that at best from the world. At worst, you're a fool. There is no God. Nothing comes after this. There's actually a theological discipline called theodicy. Fancy term for the theology of, of defending God and, uh, and the idea that he, he would allow evil. How can, how can God allow evil? Why doesn't he judge? There is a God... Why doesn't he just eliminate evil? Why doesn't he just get rid of all the bad people, you know, in the other pew? I think we know what we would do if we were God. We'd just wipe them all out. But that's not our God. The problem is, against God's righteousness, we all merit destruction. That's the reality. That's the message of, of, of the preceding message of the good news, the gospel. So we know the claim, God is slow, he's disinterested, he's disengaged. The truth, God is merciful, God is patient, 
God is kind. It is not slowness, Peter says. It's patience. It's not disinterest. It's an act of holy mercy. Peter said, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I am so grateful for the patience of God in my life. You know, that trip to Southern California, I mean, lots of things flew through my mind. I remember I hadn't turned 20 yet, and, and uh, you know, I had a good job as, as a kid. You know, I got into the, the um, grocery store. I think by 18, I was a, a journeyman clerk, and, you know, the union was strong, and man, you had a good income, full benefits, and all that sort of thing. Still living at mom's house, plenty of money to spend. So what do you do? You go out and buy the fastest motorcycle you can buy. I'll never forget that bike. Honda 750F. It was the first bike with 16 valves in four cylinders. And... Um, Thinking about one trip on my way to, uh, I can't remember the highway, but anyway, it was it, 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 it was the, it was the highway at that time you would take to go to the coast and down to Laguna Beach, and uh, you know, uh, maybe I'm only speaking to guys, but at that age we're indestructible, right? I mean, we're immortal, and I tucked down and tried to see how fast it it, it could go and. And uh, the thing was vibrating so much after it passed 120. <laughs> and, I, and I backed off that thing. But, you know, thinking back to that now, then it was like, wow, you know, I handled it. Had that under control. Thinking back to it now, the grace of God said, not today. You are not ready I would not be with the Lord if, if he had not been patient at that moment in my life. Because we have a motor cop looking at me over here. <laughs> Thankfully, he's retired. <laughs> and there's probably a statute of limitations anyway. <laughs> But the amazing thing, if you look in this text, this is what the scoffer uses as their excuse for saying there is no God. That you're a fool. Because he hasn't come back yet. Because he hasn't fixed all the other people that need fixing. The amazing thing is that some will take the mercy of God and turn it into an argument against the existence of God. Or worse, that he's evil. Well, just as certain as mercy is offered now, his return will be sudden. Peter says, 
in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. The the reality is the day of the Lord will come and it will come like a thief. You know, as as I thought more about that, I think I kind of realized in the back of my mind what I thought he was telling me was he wanted me to know that it's coming like a thief so that um, I wouldn't be surprised. But he's really not saying that because he's saying it will come like a thief. You will be surprised. The entire world would be surprised. Believer, unbeliever, everybody is surprised. No one knows the day. What he is saying is, be prepared for the day that will surprise you. That's why it's, it's, it's a myth that, and I heard this recently in, in a passing comment, and of course it was, it, it was said kind of laughingly that, that um, you know, I'm going to get around to that. I know I got to take care of that God thing. And I will. The problem is that day will never come. That's a fallacy. The belief that you will get around to it. is more than likely something you will never get around to. I kind of wondered, you know, why this is that, that um, we think that there's always going to be a tomorrow. I thought about, um, I don't commute anymore, praise the Lord, but when I did, I, over and over again, I went through that light at 25 and 156. And, and if it was green, you know, great. I got to get up some speed and zip around five of the cars and make it to work uh, 10 seconds sooner. And, you know, it, it, if I'm honest with myself, I, I just always assumed it's, if it's green, it's going to be clear. Green, go. Green, go. Nothing's going to intervene. That's my experience. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it's always going to be. You know, we've had friends that uh, believe that same thing and went through that light. It was green, and they had the right of way, and there was a truck that disagreed, came through, and took them out, you know, and gladly the people we know in that experience um, came out okay. But it, it gives me an illustration, I think, of this assumption that tomorrow will always be the same and that our experience today proves what our experience will be like tomorrow. Peter wants us to remember that there's coming a day that will be nothing like 
today. Well, he says, there is a day coming. The Lord will come, and it will come like a thief. And he's mimicking the Lord's words from Matthew where, he, where Jesus says, therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you all you also must be ready. You won't see it coming. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Paul to the Thessalonians, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Isn't it amazing, you know, the, the beginning of this letter, uh, Peter speaks to um, a sincere mind regarding all of the scriptures, the Old Testament prophets, Jesus, the apostles. It's this, this kind of uh, understanding of the Lord's return. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's so reinforcing where you see all the apostles completely aware of the coming crisis that will come upon the world. And this, this motivated, when he says a, a, a seriousness about it, this is what drove these men and women to proclaim the gospel, to, to make it the central focus of their life because it was real. The Lord was going to return. There is a day of judgment. There was a seriousness to their lives. And he says, deliverance and salvation come for those who are awake. But what does it mean to be ready to be awake as a believer? I think it means living in, in hope of the next life and not in this life. And you say, well, you know, I got to have a job. I got I, I to gotta feed my family. I got to have clothes. Yes, absolutely. But we don't invest our hope of joy and satisfaction, and fulfillment in the things of the world. You remember the, the um, parable Jesus taught of the sower, Matthew 13, the seeds that struggled to grow. Why? The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked it out. But we want to follow the example of Abraham, father of faith. Hebrews 11.10, for he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God.
the day of the Lord, and this is the intensity of Peter's text, this is the day of the Lord for the unbeliever. While people are saying there is peace and security, then the sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. This is the tragedy of believing that all things continue as they have, that he will not fulfill his promise to return. But to the believer, Paul says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Well, the scoffer will tell you the promise of Christ's return will never come. Tomorrow will be like today, like it was yesterday. There will be no reckoning for sin. God does not care, and he will not intervene. The prophets, the apostles, and the Lord, not surprisingly, disagree. God had the power by his word to create the heavens and the earth. Think about that creative moment. And the Bible is clear. I fully trust the Genesis account. This is a 24-hour day. It is... It is like that. God creates. That is, that is the power of our God. He had the power by his word to create the heavens and the earth. He's shown his power to destroy the same by his word. He has shown his mercy through his patience with you and me. But he will not always tarry. He has promised to come again to judge the world and rescue all who trust in him. So, this is Peter's admonition to us, to, by way of remind, remembrance, have a sincere mind about these things. How do we, how do we apply that? And I love the, the ending of this text where he says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, it's all going to be gone. That stamp hobby, it's gone. The motorcycle you've been polishing every day, it's gone. That equity account, it's gone. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness indeed? Holiness speaks to our our purity, what we allow to permeate and color our lives. Godliness speaks to our direction. Are we God-focused, lovers of God, lovers of the things of God? Or are we holding on to this life in the hope of its lusts and passions? Peter tells us, a repentant sinner that turns to Jesus in faith is actually hastening the coming of the day of God. And think about it. Peter says that the reason the Lord hasn't returned is because he's patient, waiting for the repentant sinner. So to repent and turn to the Lord is actually to hasten the work the Lord is waiting to complete. Remember Peter's words, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He says to the Corinthian church, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time, behold, now is the day of salvation. Why not re- repent today? Turn to the Lord. He has been patient with you, but he will not always be. My prayer is that we will wait for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells together. That'll be a glorious day, won't it, brothers and sisters? You pray with me. Father, these are, these are weighty things. And we confess that at times we forget them. Father, we get caught up in the activities of our lives and the events of the day, things that we think are essential and critical We categorize and prioritize, and so oftentimes we handle those things poorly. Father, help us to take Peter's admonition to heart by way of remembrance, sincerely focus our mind on the truth. Jesus is coming. Father, help us by your Spirit to be ready. Father, help us by the character of our lives to not only be repentant, Father, but to proclaim your truth that others might repent and turn to you and be saved. Father, help us be part of participating actually 
in hastening the day that you will return. Thank you for your patience for us, Father God. You are a merciful and kind God. And we give you all the glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.